0: Hey, is brent leary i'm back it's another week sometimes it feels like it's just a continuous week but it is another week and i'm i'm kind of playing hurt today because well you know my Rams lost on sunday night football oh. to the to the niners uh, it's tough it's tough but i will soldier on mainly because i have a really cool person i'm talking to today well i i i gotta ask him a question to see if he's extremely cool he's adam blitzer he's uh EVP and GM of Digital for Salesforce. Adam used to live in Atlanta, but now he's out, you know, out west in that San Francisco area. So Adam, who is your favorite football team?
1: You know, Brent, uh, I probably do not want to hear you complaining about the Rams <laughs> because I grew up in Cincinnati. And so <laughs> it is it is tough to top us. We have the longest lo- road losing streak in the NFL right now. It's 17 games. Yeah, uh, it's kind of was. A, yeah, when I was a kid, you know, we went to two Super Bowls, lost both to the Niners, but we had the icky <laughs> shuffle. It was a great, great, kind of fun, colorful team. And then the 90s hit, the 2000s hit, the 2010s hit. It hasn't been pretty. It hasn't been pretty, but I'm still loyal.
0: You know what? You and I have something in common then, because you lost two Super Bowls to the Niners. I don't know how you're living out there with that over, head, but it's another story. I lost two Super Bowls to the Patriots. So I as long as cool. you said you're not a Pats fan. That's right. You can continue on and have a good conversation. At this fair, point. fair. <laughs> but it's so good to see you, man. Thanks for taking time to do this. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me. It's been a while. Yeah, as I mentioned, you you, uh, you lived in Atlanta for a few years at least, and I've been here for quite a while, and it's always funny where I, I hardly ever see people that live in Atlanta in Atlanta. I always see them like in San Francisco, and that's kind of our story too. So That's
1: right. You know, I actually lived in Atlanta for 10 years. I was there from 05 to, uh, to 2015, and my wife and I loved it. She went to Georgia Tech. Yeah, I started. Uh, I started part out there, and you and I ran into each other many, many, many times, and never in Atlanta.
0: No, that's, that's kind of interesting. But I'm just at least we we were able to do this today, so I'm, I'm that's right. about That so as I mentioned, you are the EVP and GM of Digital for Salesforce now. Just a couple of weeks, that kind of that just kind of came together. That formation just happened shortly. So why don't you tell folks exactly what uh, digital means? Uh, at Salesforce these days.
1: Sure yeah, absolutely. So most people know Salesforce as a sales company right it's it's in our name. Um, and we really started out making Salesforce automation as easy to use as Amazon. That was basically the original premise of the company. But you know we came to take on many different aspects of CRM. So from sales we moved into service really two sides of the same coin in CRM and then we opened up our platform to let customers build their own CRM apps. But in 2013, we really put our first stake in the ground around digital when we acquired ExactTarget and that really became kind of the underpinnings for our marketing cloud. Then a little bit after that, we acquired Demandware, one of the leaders in digital commerce, and that became the underpinnings of our commerce cloud. We built a community cloud organically, which let people build digital experiences. But for many years, we ran those three businesses pretty independently. And, you know, they had their own product teams, their own engineering teams, their own marketing teams, and they all became successful businesses in their own right. But when we go to a chief digital officer, you know, and we talk about marketing, or we talk about commerce, or we talk about digital experiences, and we show up that way, that's really just sort of one piece of the puzzle. When you think about what's in a chief digital officer's remit, it's really the entire digital experience, how the brand kind of shows up to that end consumer. And so we thought, you know, we have these great leading products across the board. We're running them a bit independently. Let's put them all together in one business unit uh, under one product leader. And let's really start to think holistically about that end customer experience as opposed to thinking about it in kind of these very specific silos. And for us, you know, it's also important to think about digital as not only products, right? That To some degree, that would be the easiest part. The easiest thing we could do is we could put these all together. But it's also about how do we rethink our go to market? How do we rethink our services, our implementations, our sort of expertise around digital? And then also, who are the right partners that we go to market with? Because in digital, you know, all of a sudden, you have the world's leading advertising agencies who often have the, deer, the, the ear or the hearts and minds of the chief digital officer in a way that maybe a traditional CRM implementation company wouldn't. So it's a little bit of bringing things together and then also rethinking our approach about how we go to market for this digital space. I'm going to pop up something that
0: I saw in a blog post that you wrote and it's some really interesting stats. Uh, let me, let me see if I can get this up here. Uh, I mean, the, the way that things changed at the beginning of this pandemic, it's almost like overnight, you know, just numbers started popping, but these three really did stand out. Global digital revenue grew by 74 percent year over year. It, this is Q2 stats, by the way, yep. uh, sites that advertise buy online or curbside. Look at that 127% revenue growth year over year. And then purchases from social channel referral grew 104%. I just saw something too, where uh prime day estimates or anything anywhere from like nine to $11 billion in that day. And then I saw e marketer estimate around, uh, uh, I think it's us online retail is kind of estimated to be around $795 billion. I mean, we were already headed in that, uh, you know, the digital, the the move to doing most things digital anyway, but the pandemic definitely accelerated that. How did that uh, impact kind of your approach to what you guys do at Salesforce in this regard with things happening so quickly? Digital transformation, you know, how does that impact digital transformation? Maybe you could just give us some of the the key things that changed as things changed so dramatically over like the span of a night, it seems.
1: Yeah. I mean, it has been unbelievable for digital. So uh, of course, the headwinds that we're facing as a society, the headwinds that we're facing from a health standpoint, the headwinds that we're facing economically, they've of course been tailwinds for all things digital because companies that were digital second coming into the pandemic find themselves digital only, right? By necessity, right? It's literally your only touch point you have with customers in many, many jurisdictions. And as we come out of this, and who knows when that is, but at some point we will come out of this, the companies that really thrive will probably be digital first. And what's interesting is exactly as you said, we've been on this path for years, right? Companies that, work, that are digital second, they've been moving more and more of their mix to digital uh, over the past several years. It's just that we probably crammed about five years worth of digital acceleration into these past five or six months. And some of the trends that have been, you know, really pushing on digital over the past few years are I would say these kind of digital native direct to consumer companies putting pressure on existing ways of doing business. So if you think about, you know, the Razor market, for example, you and I are probably pretty familiar <laughs> with that market. Uh, and by the way, it's always amazing when I have friends who say like, oh, you know, I haven't gotten a haircut in seven months. This is terrible." <laughs> and I'm like, I haven't gotten a haircut in seven years. Like I'm thriving right now. Uh, this is the great equalizer for me. Yeah, there's. But, I don't look any different. So, yeah, exactly. exactly. This is how I look. Um, but you think about that razor market, you know, and you think about Gillette, for example, where, you know, their their distribution chain, you know, having kind of great positioning in every store. For decades and decades was such a massive advantage for them but all of a sudden you have you know really these kind of venture-fueled businesses like harry's razor dollar shave club that can be really smart about going direct to consumer building subscription businesses and all of a sudden that distribution channel is not as much of an advantage and sometimes it's a disadvantage uh, in kind of this zigzag world of going direct to consumer and then you see that start to pop up in industries you never expected, right? Like whoever expected to get a mattress direct to consumer, where your mattress is like packed into like the size of a pill, basically, and then all of a sudden, it springs out in your room. (laughs) And from a consumer experience, these things are incredible. Like if you've ever ever bought any of those direct to consumer products, you have just this amazing experience, it comes to you, you have a great return process, etc. You can say, hey, these might not be great businesses, necessarily, right? They have to kind of Ease into becoming a profitable business. But regardless of that, they put tremendous pressure on the traditional way of doing things. And so many of these kind of more traditional companies were starting to pump more money and more resources into their own direct-to-consumer channels. Then you, you know, you hit today, where all you have possibly is a direct-to-consumer channel, or you have severely sort of limited traditional channels. So I think you had this kind of this force that was already underway. And now it's no longer a nice to have, it's a have to have. Your example around curbside is another good one where, you know, I would say companies that had best in class experiences around ordering, around consumer experience, they were already doing things like that. You know, be able to, you've made an order, you know, say, hey, you know what, I don't want to get it at my house. I want to pick it up in the store. And actually, I don't even want to go into the store. I just want you to bring it out curbside. I'll go grab it. And that, that I would say was sort of a best in class experience but it wasn't a have to have. And then all of a sudden we're thrust into this world where it's a have to have. And then as we emerge from it, that's just reset the customer expectation. Now customers, that, that's just part of the experience you expect. And that builds on the trend I would say of, you know, companies used to compete only with other companies in their industry. You know, so if you were a bank, you, when you were thinking about the customer experience, you were comparing yourselves against other banks. But now what's interesting is if a customer has a great experience with a brand, that's now what they expect from any brand, regardless of what industry they're in. So if I have an incredible experience with like Harry's razors, I now think, hey, every product I buy should be as easy to get as Harry's razors, right? Or I should be able to subscribe to any kind of product. Whether it makes sense rationally or not, that has reset the customer expectation for me. So that's sort of with his brands. You know,
0: the other thing, too, when you think about uh, you know, customer experience, supply chain always had some impact on customer experience because, you know, people expect to get things they order and they expect to get it in the time frame that, you know, you, that the expectation was set for. It seems like now customer experience is more so impacted by supply chain and some of these other kind of back office pieces. So how does digital transformation, how has that changed because of, you know, kind of the growing importance of things that may not be out in front of the customer, but impacts the experience the customer has with you?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think as consumers, none of us ever thought about either supply chain or sort of distribution before. We, you just sort of assume like there's an infinite amount on both sides of the equation, right? Like, companies are gonna have no problem stocking things. And then when I order something, it's going to be able to get to me. Um, And I think, you know, Amazon, for example, really trained us as consumers that you could sort of order almost anything and then you could get it within two days. And then all of a sudden, you know, during the pandemic, you saw, you know, certain items are prioritized, right? Like essentials are prioritized, other things, you know, maybe backed up even for a company with the logistics and operational excellence of Amazon. So all of a sudden, you know, you realize, wow, there is a finite capacity, uh, whether it's the postal service, whether it's UPS, whether it's FedEx, like they can't burst infinitely. And it's interesting to see how that's playing out for consumers like us. For the first time, you're seeing retailers uh, who aren't pinning all of their hopes on Cyber Week. Right? They're, okay. they're sort of starting Cyber Week a month ahead of time, or two months ahead of time, uh, not because they necessarily think that's the best possible strategy for sales, but because they know there is an infinite capacity on that fulfillment end, and they don't want to dilute the customer experience by having customers order things and not have them show up in a reasonable amount of time. So that's a, that's a pretty interesting thing to think about that I think we as customers, we as consumers, haven't really had to think about or haven't had to face and it's interesting to see how companies are zigging and zagging to sort of get around that and still maintain an excellent uh, customer interaction.
0: Yeah, I actually heard, uh, maybe it kind of makes sense for this year, I don't know, um, because Amazon had to push back its prime day from like July to, I think it was just last week. So that's October. That is so close to the traditional start of the, you know, the fourth quarter holiday shopping season, but it had to have an impact. So what? We'll, how how are you kind of helping your customers prepare for kind of the unknown this year when it comes to what to expect for this year's holiday season?
1: Well, so it's interesting. I mean, the stats you flashed up, um, you know, they're, they're pretty incredible. One of the ones that we talked about on our Q2 earnings call was that GMV, so gross merchandising volume or kind of the amount of merchandise flowing through our commerce system is essentially double. From the same time period a year ago, so up roughly hundred percent. So what that means is that companies are experiencing holiday level traffic. Um, so on the marketing side, they're probably doing holiday level kind of campaign execution, but on the commerce side, certainly they're experiencing holiday level surges and purchasing every single day. And so I think what's crazy to think about is like how much more holiday can holiday be. Um, And um, the the biggest impact of that is not that these companies don't think they can get the sales. They think they will be able to get the sales. It's on the fulfillment side, right? Can they actually get the orders to the end customer? So we're doing, you know, one, a couple of things, obviously from a capacity standpoint, we've had to, you know, just normally we have sort of this surge of readiness for all of our systems i mean anyone who's operating in the consumer space would would sort of do the same to make sure that we're ready for holiday season you know we had to do that starting in march right so it was just sort of a different level of preparedness that that you might have as a vendor like us and a different amount of your r d is sort of focused in that area uh the other thing is we're working a lot on kind of order flexibility with our customers so when their customers place an order where does it go? How can it be rerouted? Can it go to a local store? Can it go to a last mile sort of courier to get to them, right? As opposed to sort of a traditional means of delivery. Um, and so we're we're playing in a space that we hadn't traditionally uh, in the order management space. Um, so we launched a product around order management right at the beginning of this year, uh, really before the pandemic hit um, in in Europe and in the U.S. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than to be good. We just you know, happened to be launching that product, but it wound up becoming an incredibly important part of the customer experience to be able to sort of manipulate the order and figure out, you know, where exactly it's going to be and send it somewhere else. Um, So those are sort of the ways that we're helping our customers through this, really around capacity planning and then also flexibility around that customer experience.
0: Let me do a couple of quick shout outs. uh, Our buddy, our mutual buddy, Anand Tucker. I would say, Anand, you're half right. Uh, one of these guys is definitely the smartest guy in the room. That's for sure. And then, uh, Dawaka Singh, hello, uh, nice to meet you. And thanks for checking this out. Talk a little bit about, uh, kind of the direct to consumer, that D2C has cropped up as something that really took off as the pandemic took hold. Uh, you have that, you have cashier lists, you have contact lists, all these different things that, uh, have. Become kind of important to survival um, going forward. What's been the biggest challenges for your customers in putting some of these things in place?
1: Well, just going back to what Anand said briefly, uh, you know, I have never been the smartest guy in the room as <laughs> often as I have been over the past seven months. And that's because there's no one in the room with me <laughs> ever. Uh, so, so, from that perspective, I am doing okay. Um, You know, I think the hardest thing in general, um, you know, one, I would say in Q1, companies were paralyzed by what was happening in the world. Um, And companies were just not making decisions. And it makes sense, right? There was a tremendous amount of unknown. And I think the biggest unknown was, was not what was happening, but how long things were going to last. And what was interesting is as we hit Q2 of this year, companies started to act companies started to be decisive. And so even though things from an economic standpoint were quite poor, right, for the world, companies knew we're gonna be in this for a long time. And if we don't act now, we're not only are we not going to thrive, right? We're gonna be left behind as we come out of this. And so companies accelerated certain parts of their transformation agendas, largely the things that touch the end customer, that touch the end consumer, um, and they just pushed all of those initiatives forward, whether they hit in Q2 and Q3, because they realize, you know, we're likely to be operating like this for another full year from today, right? Who who knows exactly, but but whatever it is, it's not going to be a short transition. What's interesting is, um, you know, on the direct-to-consumer side, we're seeing brands that had never done direct-to-consumer, right, in any in any way. Uh, often, consumer packaged goods companies manufacturing companies and you know they felt the pressure i think of being disintermediated from their customers right if you're a consumer packaged goods company you have a little data about your customer but chances are the retailer that you're selling through has a much richer relationship with your customer than you do and so they've they've kind of felt this need to get closer to their customer but all of a sudden during the pandemic you know that's become a true liability for them And so you see consumer packaged goods companies, manufacturing companies standing up e-commerce sites for the first time. And I would say it's quite different from a traditional retailer e-commerce site where everything is pixel perfect. The experience is absolutely perfect. It might be a really complex, headless experience branching out into all different channels. I would say this is much more quick and dirty. Put a stake in the ground and say, hey, for the first time, we have a way to transact with our customers directly and we're just going to get something out there. We're going to learn from it. We're going to iterate. And I think it's been a much more agile approach, whereas probably you know, whatever was in their plan before was much more of the big bang, pixel perfect. We're going to take years to stand something up uh, so that that has been pretty impressive. We've also seen brands that have had direct to consumer parts of their business just really take over as much, much stronger channels for them. Uh, So I was talking to the CEO of Sonos fairly recently, and, you know, Sonos is, you know, an amazing manufacturer of sound equipment, you know, in people's homes and sound bars and subwoofers and things like that. And they've had a direct consumer channel, you know, for more than a decade, um, but still we're primarily selling through Best Buy and Amazon and things like that. And they saw their direct-to-consumer business surge 300% in Q2 year over year. So an absolutely incredible amount of growth and, you know, one, by necessity, but two, they're actually thinking about all the different ways to drive that flywheel and make it stronger and stronger. They're also adding a lot of things into their products to drive more usage uh, because the more a customer is using those products, The more they learn about them right because of course the products are instrumented and they can also pick up signals that a customer is kind of ready to have a deeper engagement they might need the next product they might be willing to be an evangelist of the product so you see them kind of layering in more services like sonos radio different ways to engage and i think that's going to be increasingly common you know companies not only have direct consumer channels for the first time but they're also building into the products a deeper level of engagement to continue to learn, to continue to build profiles around those customers.
0: You know, you said some of these companies that are, are kind of for the first time, for the first time standing up e-commerce sites or being able to, to kind of transact digitally um, because of the, the total inrush of what happened. So eventually you would think, you know, at some point, um, yeah, there's been a big inrush, but then other companies are going, more and more companies are going to be able to kind of, you know, do this D to C and, and transact digitally. So then it becomes more about uh, not, not just kind of capitalizing on, you know, the quick and dirty, but having to build something that's going to be sustainable and 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 keep relationships with customers over time. Uh, so you're looking at, you know, you're, you're looking at all this focus kind of on customer data platforms because all the data is coming from these disparate areas. So maybe you could talk about what happens after we get past the phase of the quick and dirty, and how do companies transition to be able to leverage data, you know, from a variety of perspectives um, to to not only keep customers but actually, you know, uh, find new ones. And, you know, we're talking about marketing and advertising in addition to yep. you know the um, the meat and potato pieces as well.
1: Yeah, well, you you touched on one of the biggest trends in marketing right now, which is a customer data platform or CDP. And, you know, this isn't this isn't a new idea. It's become a new space. Um, but the idea of putting all of your marketing and sort of customer and sales data in one place so that marketing can do something with it, you know, that's an idea that people have been working on, you know, at least for the last 10, 15 years. It just used to be called something different. It was like a customer master data system or something and it was a it was a big it project typically it wasn't as much a marketing project and the problem is you know it would own it they would do all the integrations it would be a giant data warehouse in something like teradata and marketing would then ask it hey i need this kind of segment of people in this demographic who bought these products and then it would ship them a file and then marketing would do something with it and of course, that's about as far from real time as possible, <laughs> right? that whole system I just described. And so those projects, you know, they are often expensive and sort of sat on the shelf. Well, you, know, you fast forward a bit and you get into this world where you have data lakes and data lakes that are increasingly commoditized by the big cloud vendors. So you have the application vendors be able to build on top of those and really build products that give marketing an interface on top of all that data to work. So you have all your data flowing into this big data lake, it gets normalized on the way in so that, maybe there are 10 different Brent Learys from 10 different systems, and all of a sudden it collapses onto this golden record of Brent Leary, and the marketer uh, can richly segment and profile, and then activate to all their different marketing channels. That's really becoming possible for the first time. Of course, there are the big MarTech vendors like us that are working on this problem, there are also a number of really well-funded startups working on this problem. Um, it is such a hot term right now that there are probably 80 startups that are using the term CDP, of which probably eight are actually building CDPs. But that's how you know a space is hot. Um, and you know, if you talk to the CEOs, or, or sorry, the CMOs of the biggest companies in the world, most of them have CDP on the tip of their tongues right now. And they're if they're not actively kind of building or evaluating one of these, they're thinking about how do we kind of set the stage to do this? And, you know, the reason that this is so strategic is there's never been a single source of truth in marketing. The reason for that, you know, if you look at Scott Brinker's famous infographic, the Martech 5000, which is an amazing misnomer because there are 8,000 companies (laughs) on the (laughs) Martech 5000. And it's like, it looks like a map of Westeros at this point. There's like every little country of marketing uh, represented. When I started Part Out in 2007, there were 150 logos on that slide. So in 13 years, you go from 150 MarTech, you know, kind of major MarTech companies to 8,000. What it means is you can't predict how MarTech is going to change. You can't predict all of the channels that will become important all the cottage industries that'll spring up. Uh, you can only predict that there's going to be more and more complexity. And if you want to really wrangle that complexity, you think about it like a chess game. In chess, you usually want to control the center of the board. The way you control the center of the board in MarTech is if you kind of have that data, that strong foundation in data, and then everything else becomes really a channel. Um, so that's where I think you'll see the main battle being fought in marketing. Probably you know five, six years ago, the, the industry that attacked this, they just did it very differently. It was called DMP, so these data management platforms. And they were largely focused on anonymous and they were also largely focused on advertising. And that market you know, has really changed tremendously over the past 12 months. Uh, you know I think first GDPR started to change that market quite a bit. Also in the US, you have CCPA, uh, you know, California's Privacy Protection Act also coming in. Um, And then you have the browsers themselves. Um, So you have Google making major changes in Chrome around the way it it works with third-party cookies. And so all of a sudden, these technologies that rely on third-party cookies and cookie tools become less important. And these technologies that rely much more on first-party data like CDPs really rise to prominence. So there are a lot of customers kind of thinking about their shift between those two platforms. And then there's certainly vendors like us also thinking about the shift between those two platforms. Um, but that's how we see companies really starting to kind of wrangle this data for the first time and also do it in a way that is really compliant with regulations and also compliant with consumer trust, right? right. doing things in a really consumer friendly manner.
0: I was definitely gonna uh, touch on that because my next question is what, we're about eight months in now in this pandemic, uh, seven or eight months. Uh, what's what are the biggest challenges facing companies today with respect to digital and and all the things that we just discussed?
1: Well, you know, I, I think one of the first challenges is you have this rapidly evolving landscape in privacy, um, privacy and and trust. And you know, I think GDPR was of course well first. You know, before GDPR, there was sort of you know the the cookie cookie apocalypse in Europe. Uh, where the EU kind of, you know all of a sudden you had those uh, those pop-ups everywhere about accepting cookies. And there was sort of no rhyme or reason to how it was enforced. Um, and it led to a really kind of fragmented experience. Uh, GDPR really put the stake in the ground around creating a global standard. And of course, it was a European standard, but I think marketers that really took things seriously just made it their global standard. And I think that's a best practice is you take whatever the strictest standard is, and you just make that your new global standard. And you're not operating with different kind of privacy assumptions across the board. And certainly now you see a very kind of similar, um, you know, initiative in the US, um, you know, with California that you can say that this is becoming a truly global standard. So I think, you know, that being in compliance with that while also being effective at digital marketing, um, you know, the push and the pull between those two is complex for marketers. The other thing is there's this increasing fragmentation and localization of data where if you're operating multinationally, there is this increasing bend towards uh, jurisdictions and countries wanting data around consumers to stay local. And to some degree, that can be uh, counter to what the marketer wants to do, which is putting all of their data in one place and being able to really derive learnings by having that data in one place and applying kind of machine learning across the board. Um, so it adds operational complexity and then potentially just, you know, kind of goes against the plans that they might have had. Um, so I think I think those two things are tricky. Um, there's also balancing this desire for really intense personalization of marketing efforts. So the, the end goal of having a single source of truth is so that you can have really rich personalization with your customer, you know, we've all talked, I assume people have been talking for the past 100 years about, you know, the right message to the right customer at the right time. Uh, we, we've been talking about that forever. Um, I think we actually funny. both had
0: hair at that point, too. We both
1: had you. hair. Certainly. <laughs> um, actually, I, you know, when I first met you, I would describe the transition that I was in as I didn't yet know I was bald. It's like I only had hair over here and I wish someone had staged an intervention with me, but they all just must have thought it was hilarious. So they just. Went <laughs> Um, But that's really the end goal of that single source of truth. Um, But doing that in a way that is congruent with customer trust, where you let customers know how you're collecting data, you let them opt out, you let them, you know, really richly kind of control their preferences uh, is challenging. And when you think about these MarTech stacks, where the average company, you know, might have 10 to 30 different pieces of MarTech in their stack, well, those 10 to 30 different pieces of MarTech, probably all store preferences separately. They all kind of have their own notion of what consent is, and making sense of that, I think, is really challenging. So those are some of the things I w- I would say are difficult for marketers to contend with. The last one, probably, I know I've gone on a little bit here, is the proliferation of channels, mm-hmm. right? Who who among us would have guessed that TikTok, you know, was an important marketing channel, right, four years ago? Or, you know, frankly, even that Instagram was, you know seven years ago, or, you know, you keep going back, but these channels are just getting more and more complex. There are more and more of them. Um, and then there are the kind of hyper local channels, you know, again, you know, if you're a multinational and you're thinking about Japan, you better have a strategy with wine. If you're thinking about Korea, you better have a strategy with KakaoTalk. If you're thinking about China, WeChat is the internet right chances are your existing marketing tools don't have product market fit for china because everything is flowing through wechat and these are just things that marketers did not have to think about five six seven years ago
0: and and almost maybe to to even kind of wrap that up a little bit is you got to be ready for a world where as more digital interactions take place more control goes to the customer and you have to kind of have that in mind as you do your digital transformation it's not just about the technology it's about you know what does this technology do to the relationship and and kind of give uh more of the experience creation is actually or at least the experience decision making is is taking place with the customer at and outside of the actual organization today
1: absolutely. and you know you have to be comfortable a little bit letting go of your brand, right you have other stewards of your brand that you haven't had before potentially and I think, you know the first time businesses started to see that you know was kind of the early days of social where you had evangelists but you also had critics you had youtube with rich content that you didn't create you didn't own probably and uh you know i think realizing you weren't in a hundred percent control of your brand was pretty complicated and now you know you're just seeing that expand day by day by day as the number of channels and the number of people the number of creators, right, who are deeply engaged with those channels, um, you know, kind of flourish.
0: Adam, it's been great talking with you, man. I'm I'm, uh, so glad that you were able to make some time. And maybe if you want, if there's any place on the web, you know, you guys have so many (laughs) things on the web, of course, but any place you want to point people to to learn even more about some of the things that we talked about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'd say the two places that I would encourage people to go to, um, so one is the Salesforce 360 blog. Um, so we've completely redone the blog of the company. It's not all things digital, um, but, you know, it's, it's sort of all things Salesforce, um, of which digital is a big, big piece. Um, you'll also kind of get a good sense of leading through change and, you know, how do you how do, you, how do businesses go through an experience like what we're all going through now? Um, the second place is Trailhead. Trailheads are online learning platform where you can skill up, again, on all things digital. I think a lot of us are tackling things like this uh, for the first time. And so, you know, we encourage you to come on, have some fun, and learn about all the latest technologies that are out there.
0: And it's been a pleasure. And I, once again, you know, if anybody was like making fun of you during your transitional, you know, period to the ball, I hope you, you know, with your black belt, I hope you like handled your business, man. Gave somebody a chop or something, you know. That that's there's. I always reserve a chop for someone with a,
1: snark, <laughs> with a snarky comment, Brett.
0: <laughs> there it is, man. Hey, it's been a pleasure. And let's uh let's let's not be like uh, too long. Let's not take years before we do something like this again. This is a lot of fun.
1: That sounds good to me. One of these days I will see you in Atlanta and I'm looking forward to it.
0: Okay, you you, you heard him. It's on camera. That's right. here. You heard. Him. All right. Take care man. Thanks again. Likewise. Thanks so much, Brent.